We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio this evening is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And also in studio today, we've got Ross Feingold of DC International Advisory. Ross. Good evening. Today on the show, we're given a bit of a politics update on the presidential campaign. Looks like the muckracking campaign has finally kicked into high gear. We'll be taking a look at the uh, pending sale of a Taiwan media group that some warn could put it in the pocket of the Chinese military. And we'll follow that up with a whole bunch of other cross-strait stories. But first, is Taiwan in the Islamic State's crosshairs? Well, probably not. But let's back up for a moment and look at how this even became a question worth considering. Earlier this week, U.S. President Barack Obama included Taiwan in his list of countries that are part of the U.S. coalition against extremist groups. He made the remarks at an ASEAN summit in Kuala Lumpur, and uh, Taiwan officials, well, they were quite grateful for the recognition. Taiwan joined the likes of Australia, Canada, Japan, Malaysia, and a whole bunch of others. Uh, However, later in the week, Taiwan was included in a very different list, and uh, the second list has left many feeling quite shaken, actually. Uh, Gavin, tell us about that second list. The second list was part of an Islamic State propaganda video that apparently featured some 80 flags of countries that they deem to be battling them and or being part of some coalition against them. The ROC flag appeared there. It was quite ironic because it actually had Taiwan underneath it rather than ROC, but never mind, that's another issue. This, of course, irked some people in Taiwan, and they, the government, instead of quickly jumping and thanking the US president for naming the island as a member of his coalition fighting the Islamic State, decided to go, oh, whoops, maybe hang on a minute. We are helping, but we're only helping in certain ways. Right, let's, uh, that's a good next point to get to. So what ways uh, is Taiwan helping uh, in particular? Well, the government turned around and said, we're not helping militarily. Right. So they quashed that and said, no, we're not providing arms, weapons or bodies and there's no boots on the ground for us. Instead, we are providing humanitarian assistance to all war-torn regions, especially in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And the stuff that they're giving is uh, prefabricated housing and LED lights, mostly. Mostly, and medical supplies, clothing and food. Apparently, they've provided, according to the government, some 10 billion US dollars of aid Mm -hmm. to refugees in various parts of the world who have become refugees due to conflict over the past several years. All right, so uh, since this list was put out, uh, the government has said that it is aware of the list, uh, and we've heard a little bit about uh, anti-terrorism measures that have been put into place. Um, apparently, security at the Taoyuan International Airport has been upped, but then security at the airport was upped, I think, after the Paris terror mm-hmm. attacks. Mm-hmm. And the government also says that immigration is being tightened. Okay. So should you happen to be a national from a country that is wrapped in conflict, shall we say, you'll have to apply especially to get a visa to come here. Right. Might be a little bit more difficult to get in. Uh, so a little bit of a response right there. Uh, as Gavin mentioned a moment ago, uh, one of the big things that we saw this week is uh, a, a number of politicians kind of questioning Taiwan's inclusion on this list. Uh, we heard remarks sort of to that effect from Taipei Mayor Ko Wenzhou and also from uh, People's First Party head James Soong. 
Uh, Ross, so what did what do you take away from that controversy? I mean, is is there a real reluctance in Taiwan to be seen as part of this uh, global coalition? I think generally there's a, a, a positive feeling in Taiwan when they get recognition for providing humanitarian aid. And, and given Taiwan's official diplomatic isolation, this is generally considered a good thing. And Taiwan, fortunately, has a good track record of providing this kind of assistance in different geographies around the world whenever there are natural disasters such as earthquakes uh, in, 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 or typhoons, for example. Uh, the Philippines a couple of years ago, the very serious typhoon, Taiwan was w- well known for providing aid, the tsunami in Japan, etc., and Taiwan got a lot of positive recognition. Uh, it's too bad that some of the politicians want to want to twist this into something negative when they should be saying, yes, this is a way for Taiwan to to get its name out there in a very positive way. Uh, it, it, again, it, it's, it's unfortunate um, that, that America or James Sung would try and turn this into a negative when actually it is a positive for Taiwan. And frankly, uh, I think we could all agree Taiwan is really not target number one for, for uh, terrorists. They, they, they have much more important targets, uh, much more higher value targets than, than coming to Taiwan. And, and I think generally we consider uh, public safety here quite good. And, and the ability to come to Taiwan and execute any kind of terrorist plot would be extreme, extremely difficult, frankly. All right. Well, we're going to have to move on uh, beyond that story. It sounds like the general sentiment here is that uh, this being on this list does not really represent a major threat to Taiwan. Uh, that's my feeling anyway. But uh, I, I hope that we're right in that uh, having that sense. But we're going to move on to politics, and uh, there was quite a bit of politics this week. Uh, So we're only going to stick to the highlights. Uh, Of course, getting into the week, we thought that the highlight was going to be uh, the candidate's registration. Uh, This being the week uh, for the official registration of candidates in both the legislative and the presidential races. Uh, But that got somewhat overshadowed uh, by this campaign season's first big bout of uh, muckraking, Gavin. Yes, the KMT's vice presidential candidate, Wang Ruxun, has faced criticism after it was revealed that her and her family had... Um, I wouldn't like to call them real estate speculators, but they do own quite a bit of property. And their Mm -hmm. questions were raised about... A, how they afforded to buy the property, B, if they bought the property legally, and C, there was some controversy about whose name the property was in and why they didn't live in it. And then there was uh, also some questioning of uh, why she was living in government-subsidized uh, housing if she had all of this property. Yeah, that was. they call it a dormitory, but it's not like a room with bunk beds with a bunch of stinky blokes farting right. every two seconds or so and dirty socks everywhere. Well, we don't, we don't know what kind of a, a boat. She calls home. <laughs> it's actually a nice apartment block in a government a government-owned <laughs> building, basically. Right. Anyway, well, well she, to be fair, government ministers are entitled to this kind of housing. It's a perk that's come with. Yeah, with, there, there's with nothing holding, illegal there. I didn't you know, mean to imply that at all. So, you know, it's pretty normal, and it's, it's gone on with, with successive governments, whether it was KMT government or DPP government. But uh, to be fair to Jennifer Schwann, I mean, this is somebody with a long career in public service, whether it's in government or, or with social service organizations. Uh, I, I think it's a bit of a leap to question her honesty. I think that's what most people have said, actually. They're, they're, they're questioning. I mean, we're talking you know, about somebody with a twenty-year history of, of, of working with with disadvantaged groups and, and, and both in public service as well as w- with NGOs. And uh, it, this really, as you said, looks like muckraking. Frankly, it, does. it is. I mean, all, the fact. Oh, I, mean, I, I do think that if her husband Huang Dongshun hadn't been head of the Judicial UN's Department of Government Ethics. It probably wouldn't have even actually made news. Mm, possibly. Because it was an ethics department, of course. It's like, oh, hang on a minute. Well, what you know, it's, it's inevitable with, with uh, 
elections in Taiwan, whether it's presidential candidates or, or in this case, vice presidential candidates, somebody's going to look for something. And obviously, the same thing happened with the DPP's uh, vice presidential candidate. Right away, he's accused of plagiarism with some of his scientific papers. So. Right. I guess I shouldn't even say the first round of muckracking. I guess we already had one there. That uh, one dated back to 2007. All right. This so is a, this is a newer muckraking. Yes, newer muck. Newer muckraking, yes. Newer muck. All right. Uh, but let's uh, dwell at least for a moment on those uh, registrations this week because, uh, I mean, it, finally we do know the exact shape of uh, what this election is going to look like. Yeah, James Sung of the People First Party and his running mate Xu Xinying registered on Tuesday. The KMT's Eric Ju and, of course, Jennifer Wong registered on Wednesday. And as we're recording this show on Friday, the DPB's Tsai Ing-wen and her running mate Chen Jian-ren registered, well, quite, quite a couple of hours ago, actually, this morning. A couple of hours ago, all right. Oh, this morning. They registered this morning in Taipei at the Central Election Headquarters. And before Tsai registered this morning, she said simply that her and her party have been preparing for this election for four years. Mm. Well, then she would have no excuse for, for losing if she's had four years to prepare for an election. That's true. That's we'll one way to, to look at it. See about that, though, <laughs> let's uh, let's take a little Hunger Game moment and uh, take oh. a moment to reflect upon the departed, those that have fallen. Yes, I was going to get into that. There are no independent presidential candidates this year, which is you know turn out for the books, because the Central Election Commission has said that there were originally four pairs of presidential and vice presidential aspirants, but unfortunately none of them managed to collect the three hundred thousand signatures of support needed to run as independent candidates. Well, the the interesting thing about that as a long-term trend might seriously be that Taiwan is going to, like like many other Western democracies, turn into a two-party system. Um, And and one way to uh, further examine that after January would be to see how some of the third parties or these new independent parties that formed after the Sunflower Movement do in the legislative election, whether or not they break the barrier to form a caucus. Uh, Coming out of the the occupation of the legislative UN, people thought, wow, there's going to be all these third parties. Um, But we see how they've split. They're they're Mm -hmm. kind of based on on individual personalities, and and they've turned out not to be a sustainable force. Yeah, if they uh, if they are going to make big gains, this would be the year. So uh, it's going to be a very uh, telling legislative election, I think. All right, and uh, real quick, we got to keep moving because we got one more story that we want to fit into the first half. Uh, the big story on all the headlines this morning uh, pertains to arms sales to Taiwan, and we got a little bit of news uh, that, well, we learned a little bit more about uh, the shape of an arms deal that is coming Taiwan's way uh, in the near future. But uh, arms sales are not really my forte; they are instead Gavin's forte. So it's your show, Gavin. Uh, what do we need to know about this one? Apparently, this is not being confirmed by either the Ministry of Defense here or the U.S. government, but speculation is rife that the U.S. will release a $1 billion arms package sometime in mid-December. Now, it includes four Perry-class missile frigates, at least half a dozen amphibious landing vehicles, one Apache helicopter, that's to replace the one that they crashed into a rooftop of a building in Taoyuan some years ago, and numerous missile systems. Now, while that sounds nice on paper, it's not actually new systems they're being sold, is it, Ross? Some of these systems are rather aged. That's true. Some some of this equipment uh, does date back 40-plus uh, years, so it's, it's old technology. We would normally expect Beijing to object, but maybe this time the objections will be somewhat muted due to the fact that it is ancient technology. You know, it says a lot of things. One, it says, why hasn't Taiwan been able to develop 
its own technology for some of this kind of equipment. Uh, it certainly calls into question uh, what what Tsai's approach will be to defense procurement once she's been elected. She has issued some detailed position papers on defense, and including trying to build the indigenous local defense uh, manufacturing industry. Uh, so one interesting thing to watch in the next few weeks, should this be officially announced, is, is whether the DPP will be supportive of the budget, or they'll say, you know what, we don't want to buy this old equipment, we're going to build our own new equipment. So definitely an issue to, to keep watching over the next few weeks and see how it plays out, both for the reaction from Beijing as well as the reaction from the DPP. What's also interesting is the fact that they give, the U.S. has offered them four Perry-class frigates. And this isn't new. The U.S. offered these Perry-class frigates to Taiwan sometime last year. But Taiwan, the, the Ministry of Defense here, has been ooing and ooing over whether it wants to buy four of them or two of them. Well, either way, again, we're talking about somewhat aged equipment and you know, whether you have two or four is that good enough to keep up with the, the very rapid advances in technology on, on the mainland sides? So again, two or four, it might not matter. Uh, you know, it's, it's really the technology involved and whether it sufficiently uh, protects Taiwan from the very grave risks that it faces. Of course, they are all reef. They're, they're all, they're not, when they buy the frigates, these aren't like the internals aren't from 1970. The, yes, inter- but- the internals and the electric systems and the guidance systems and the defense systems, the fire safety systems, they're all high-tech modern. Fair enough, but they're, not, they're probably also not getting the most up-to-date U.S. technology either. So, so again, you know, we're sort of back to the same question. Is, is, you know, what, why, why isn't Taiwan further developing its own indigenous technologies? All right, and we will have to uh, leave that question to hang in the air because it's uh, time for a little break right now. When we come back... It's going to be all about those cross-strait relations. Uh, We've got broken-down trade talks, controversial media sales, and a disgruntled beauty queen contestant. Uh, So lots of good stuff coming up after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Ross Feingold. Uh, so as promised, in the second half, we've uh, just got a big old string of cross-strait stories to get through. First up, the cross-strait trade in goods deal continued to pace late last week, uh, but looks like it broke down this Monday over issues related to farm produce exports, Gavin. Yes, the, tra- the talks were two-day talks in Taipei, where they were talking about the trade in goods agreement. Of course, this is not the first time that this agreement has been marred in somewhat controversy. But apparently Beijing insisted that Taipei once again lift all the restrictions it has on all Chinese produce. Mm-hmm. Which Taipei, which is the government here, said, no way, Jose. And Beijing said, well, um, OK, well, we can't move forward on the trading goods agreement talk until you've done that. Interesting thing about this is that, uh, that there's this term early harvest. And in a lot of the trade talks between the two sides. The so-called early harvest was that China allowed a lot of Taiwan produce entry into China on very favorable terms, which turned out to be very good for farmers in Taiwan and, and, and quite, quite a lucrative business, partly on the basis that Taiwan had a good brand name 
right? The quality of the fruit was considered very good from Taiwan. But in a way, it's understandable that at some point China would expect some reciprocity. But, but, but we should also keep keep in mind sort of the political angle here and the, why the services agreement broke down. So uh, given the late stage where we are in the Ma, the Ma government, a new legislature that's going to come in in February, you know, the likelihood politically that any kind of trade deal could, could be approved um, in, in Taiwan is probably very difficult. And I think China knows that as well. And that's probably something that's lurking in the background in these talks anyway, regardless of specifics about certain kinds of products or, or, or the treatment that they'll get. Yeah, apparently, according to, this, according to this report, Taiwan currently bans 600 types of agricultural products in China. Mm-hmm. So there's a figure there. But, of course, while the talks broke down, several officials have come out and said they still hope to wrap these talks up by year's end, which, of course, as Ross said... It's probably not going to happen. Especially since the DPP is still calling for that oversight law, that cross-strait oversight law, which uh, itself hasn't really made much progress since uh, it was introduced a long, long time ago. Yeah. And again, if you, you, they wrap up the talks by year-end. That, that means we're two weeks out from the presidential election, and then two weeks later a new legislative UN will take, will take office. We don't know which party will be the majority party. So the, there's just an extraordinary amount of political difficulty with getting this, these agreements through. So uh, I, let's let's emphasize the importance that they're talking. And I think that's very good. Let's hope that regardless of which party uh, becomes uh, the, the governing party takes the presidency or which party is the majority party in the legislature, that the two sides keep talking and eventually find a way to, to reach an accommodation. And, and, and that's a positive for everyone, right? That's, that's, that's ultimately a positive for Taiwan's agricultural exporters. But let's not hope that these things will happen rapidly. But uh, let's ask the question. I mean, uh, you know, there is going to be a a bit of a change of the guard pretty soon, quite likely. We're going to see a a DPP administration go into power. uh, And when the Ma Xi meeting came, I think the big point that everybody uh, was looking at is that uh, perhaps Ma was trying to set a precedent. You know, this is the form of cross-strait relations that are going to be carried over into any uh, future uh, administration. Uh, is there any chance that having these talks now is going to set a precedent and build a little bit of momentum behind these talks and, and that would continue into uh, DPP administration? Or is that uh, basically going to stall, do we expect? Um, I think that depends how you look at it. Of course, to play the devil's advocate, one could look at it as if the Mar administration is basically trying to push forward with all these closer relations with China before it possibly loses office. But right. it could go the other way in the sense that one, one of the, gr- the the great accomplishments for the two sides over the last seven years is that they moved from the non-government organizations to government-to-government discussions. And uh, if Tsai Ing-wen wins the election, you know, will China continue to do that? We just don't know. right? Are they going to have government-to-government discussions with DPP ministers? And if they want to slow that down as a way to express their displeasure, that could cause things as basic as trade negotiations to come to a halt for a considerable amount of time. I think what could be worse is if the DPP win, Beijing continues to only talk to people from the Guomindang. Well, again, then that, that would put a halt to any kind of actual trade agreements because at some level, these agreements need to be signed government to government. All right. Well, we're going to uh, keep tracking that story in the next couple of weeks and months. Uh, probably won't be in suspense for too much longer, actually. So we'll uh, know the answer to that. But we're going to move on to our next story. And this next one, well, it's really just about the sale of a Taiwanese media company to an American media company. Pretty straightforward stuff in general. But here's the cross-strait tie-in and 
where it gets controversial, the buyer seems to have some links to the People's Liberation Army, Gavin. Yeah, DMG Entertainment. Apparently it's based in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I, I personally have never heard of DMG Entertainment although I probably might have seen its television channels somewhere in the world. It's hoping to purchase Eastern Broadcasting Company, which, of course, is ETTV, mm -hmm. which is a well-known... Very well-known. Would, one would say it's, it's a well-known pro sort of China. Not Pro might be a stronger word, but it's always been sort of... Not like FTV here, which is pro sort of Taiwan. Eastern Broadcasting has always been sort of a pro-China sort of television station. Mm-hmm. And it hopes to sell. Well, DMG came out this week and said it hopes to buy um, a Carlisle Group. The Carlisle Group, of course, own a large share of Eastern Broadcasting. And apparently DMG is hoping to spend $600 million US dollars buying out Carlisle's stake in Eastern Broadcasting. The problem, though, lies with the company chairman, because DMG is apparently a subsidiary of a company called Dynamic Marketing Group, which was founded in Beijing in 1993. The company's chairman is called Peter Xiao, and his father just happened to be China's Deputy Minister of Defence from 1954 to 1982. Needless to say, his family have a lot of clout with the People's Liberation Army, which has raised red flags here in Taiwan due to there being current laws that say local media outlets cannot be owned wholly or even up to a percentage by China. Well, that, that, that raises the question of whether or not the deal will be approved. And we've seen in the last few years, even under the President Ma government, the KMT government, which has generally had, had attempted to have good relations with China, that there have been a number of business deals where part of the acquiring group did have money either from Hong Kong or from mainland, and ultimately the deals were not approved. And we saw that in several different sectors, including telecommunications and media and others. Uh, so uh, clearly there's going to be political opposition to this deal. Obviously it's going to come from the DPP. It might even come from the KMT as well. Uh, there's no nothing to be gained politically by saying uh, we, we think this is a great idea to allow a group with Chinese money to purchase such a large media group. And, and as you mentioned, Eastern uh, owns a, a wide range of television stations, whether it's news, movies, home shopping, etc. So this is going to be a very controversial deal. And with the Ma government having only a limited time still in office, the likelihood that it will be approved during their limited time in government is probably very small. I would expect this deal to stretch on for a consider considerable amount of time until we have a final decision. Well, it could go away like the, of course, the next media deal, the famous next media, when Jimmy Lai came out and said... That was a much bigger deal. I want to sell some of my media group, and then several Chinese-owned companies came out and wanted to buy it. And, and what happened was the government sent very strong signals that we don't like the structure of the deal, which was another way of saying we don't like the personalities or the financing behind the deal. And again, that's been the pattern with some of these deals that are somewhat controversial, even though on paper, according to the applicable laws and regulations, the deals might approve. What I mean is they might not break or, or exceed any of the, the maximum requirements on mainland or foreign money to own these kinds of assets, but it's a becomes a political problem 
problem where political officials don't want to become the target of the public or of the other media that say they approve the deal. So th- this one will be another example where it, it's going to go on for a while. And I think given that it's a foreign media group, U.S.-based, although it might have some Chinese backing, there's going to be a lot of international media attention to whether this deal is approved. And ultimately, it's going to say a lot about whether or not Taiwan is open for business. Right. And, you know, the concern here, I think, is pretty understandable. I mean, if uh, a Taiwanese media group uh, being influenced in any way by the People's Liberation Army, you know, that's, that's, it's understandable to see why people would be concerned about that. Uh, I have no uh, experience in, in this part of the business world. I don't know too much about it. So, Ross, could you explain to, to me and some other listeners that might be curious about this, what would be the concern if international investment uh, was not allowed to take place in, in Taiwanese media? Why is that in something that's important for these media companies? Well, well I think it's, it's, it's the issue specifically with, with companies that do a lot of business in China. So we do have some television networks here in Taiwan that do have significant business interests in other part of their business empires, not necessarily the media side, that do a lot of business in China. And the concern would be that they report the Taiwan news in a way that's favorable to China. Now, another way to look at that, though, would be to say, do we trust the viewers of Taiwan? Do we have enough faith in the viewers and the maturity of the public of Taiwan to be able to discern what the message is from the media that they are watching? Or is it the role of the government officials in Taiwan, regardless of which political party they come from, to dictate and to decide on behalf of the public because they think the public is too immature or too easily confused by what's being reported on the news? I I think we'd all like to believe that, that Taiwan's democracy has matured to the point where we should let the viewers decide. On the other hand, we have regulators in Taiwan that say we're not going to let CCTV from China be broadcast in Taiwan. So we still see a somewhat paternalistic attitude from regulators in Taiwan about what kind of programming they want carried on the air and ultimately, in this case, what kind of ownership they want over the programming that's on the air. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But uh, where the money comes from does have an impact on on the media group. I mean, I think uh, people are always putting uh, media groups such as ICRT under scrutiny uh, as to where is the uh, money coming from. And I think that that's absolutely legitimate, uh, a legitimate thing to do. Uh, so maybe the government shouldn't be a part of that scrutiny. I don't know. But uh, I, I think that that scrutiny in general is a, a healthy and needed thing. But, but, but that raises the question, then, shouldn't we let the market decide? So if Taiwan is a free market economy, for example, if this sale goes through and there is a level of PRC money in the ownership group that takes over this network, and if the viewing public feels that too much of the coverage is pro-China – then the viewing public can simply change the channel to a different station. But then, you know, media buyouts always attract a lot of attention from politicians all over the world. That's true. And, and again, it's, it's sometimes it's because of the programming, sometimes it's because of the cost that might be involved. Uh, I mean, something that's become, become very controversial in channel, I'm sorry, in Taiwan has been the sale of cable television networks and the local cable provider, um, some of which have been owned by private equity groups. And, and the concern that uh, the, the cost to subscribe to cable television might increase because some foreign owner is going to come in and buy it. Uh, but again, this just goes back to the same thing, a paternalistic attitude towards the regulator rather than letting, letting the market decide yes and if the market could decide i could watch premier league english soccer uh yes (laughs) i think that the market has decided gavin and you're out of luck on that one you're uh you're a market of one is the feeling i'm getting all right well uh we are gonna have to move 
to our last story, which uh, again involves cross-strait politics. Cross-strait politics are even invading the world of beauty contests. Uh, there's been a story bouncing around the interwebs this past week of a Taiwanese beauty queen getting kicked out of a competition uh, because she refused the organizer's demand to wear a sash that read Miss Chinese Taipei. Uh, Gavin, she apparently wanted to wear a different sash reading Miss Taiwan ROC. Yes, this concerns Ding Wenyin. Uh, she's a 22-year-old girl from here in Taiwan who, well, she was invited to take place in the Miss Earth 2015 pageant, which was in, hosted in Vienna, Austria. Bit of an environmentally-themed uh, beauty pageant. Miss Earth. There Miss you go. Earth, it's, yeah. It's, it's look of a PC sort of beauty pageant. Mm-hmm. You know, they're meant to be environmentally <laughs> aware and educated. As, as PC as a beauty pageant can get. Yes, as they get, yes. Unfortunately, she was hoofed out of the pageant this past weekend in Austria because she refused to change her sash. Now, her original sash, that is the little bit of red cloth they wear over themselves, they're covering their parts, read Miss Taiwan ROC. Apparently, organisers said, you can't wear this, you have to wear this one. This one reads Miss Chinese Taipei. And I love her line. She had a great line. She had a brilliant line. I have to find this, I have to find this line here. Do bear with me. This, this was just a brilliant comeback, I believe. Now I've got to explain it. She said she was born in Taiwan. She came from Taiwan. And she was representing Taiwan. Oh. And that was the end of the argument. She said, OK, fair enough. If you don't like it, I'm going away. And uh, that is what she did. And there's uh, some questions. I don't know how strong uh, the connection is, but it is believed that it was uh, t- Chinese pressure that made the organizers take that line on this. No. It'd be a first, wouldn't it, Ross? Well, this is a never-ending debate at international events, whether it's sporting events or, or meetings of international organizations, what kind of name the Taiwan representatives could use. Normally, Chinese Taipei is an acceptable name for both sides. Uh, so it seems like it was a, a personal decision by the uh, contestant not, uh, not apparently, to accept that name. Apparently, in the past, they had used the name uh, Miss Taiwan ROC. So th- I'm not clear, but I think this may have been the first year where organizers were asking for Chinese Taipei to be the wording on the sash. Well, she's so disappointed we could give her Gavin's phone number and, you know, I'm sure he'll he'll be happy to console her. Uh, That would probably be the worst fate to befall this young lady (laughs) rather than being just kicked out of a pageant. But apparently this pageant has also courted controversy before when they had a Miss Tibet. Apparently last year Miss Tibet was was to be featured in the event, but poor Miss Tibet was forced to wear a sash that read Miss Tibet China. Mm. Needless to say, the Tibetans weren't having anything to do with that at all and went, now we're walking. All right, so politics all up in these pageants. Apparently, some of the contestants were also complaining about uh, some of the food that was provided. They were saying that uh, they weren't provided with uh, lunches uh, during uh, some parts of the uh, event. Uh, they were also complaining that it was poor quality. Uh, and uh, some of them, I, according to a Facebook post uh, from this Miss uh, Ding, she was saying that uh, they were being asked to go to these nightclubs and almost act like hostesses at yes. these nightclubs. The quote is, Over the past three nights, we were shuffled from nightclub to nightclub, wearing beautiful clothes to talk and dance with men. I felt like a club hostess. So it might be a blessing in disguise that I'm out of the contest. <laughs> so maybe, uh, maybe you know, we're taking away from this that it's a pure cross-strait sort of issue, but maybe there was more to uh, the original dispute than meets the eye. Who knows? Hard to say from this far away. 
Uh, but we're going to have to leave it there for today. That's it for the show. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Yeah, good night. And Ross Feingold. Ross, thank you. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.